Welcome to the Data Brilliant Podcast with me, Joe Dos Santos, Chief Data Officer at Click. In this series, we explore how data is reshaping and redesigning the future of our business and personal worlds. From business leaders to educators to public figures, we'll be joined by experts who will give us a fresh perspective on the world through data. Today, we're joined by Deborah Barabashez, a renowned physicist, data scientist, television host, and campaigner for STEM education. She was the first Mexican woman to graduate from Stanford University with a PhD in physics. In addition to her role as lead scientist at one of Europe's leading research institutions, VTT, she co-hosts Discovery Channel's Outrageous Acts of Science, where she explores extraordinary engineering feats and the science behind them. Welcome to Data Brilliant, Deborah. Thank you, Joe. I'm excited about the conversation. So, Deborah, tell us a little bit about your background. It's a really fascinating background. A uh, um, um, little girl growing up in Mexico with big dreams of studying STEM research. How did you grow up? Tell us about your background and how did you get into the world of physics and science? Yes. So that's sort of the, the $64,000 question uh, because I grew up in a very conservative community in Mexico City that pretty much discouraged girls from pursuing careers in STEM, uh, more, you know, physics and math more than maybe biology or medicine, which were slightly more accepted. But growing up, I was intensely curious. I remember asking my father, who was a civil engineer, all kinds of questions about how he built bridges and tunnels. And I was just extremely inquisitive. And over time, you know, this it's not that it stopped being celebrated completely, but when I confessed that I loved engineering and science and mathematics, my parents started telling me when it came time to choose a career, uh, you know, for college, that, you know, it was better to pick something more feminine, maybe something like marketing or, or uh, design. And it wasn't just my parents and our family friends. It was also the teachers in school. And so what happened with me starting in secondary school is that I learned to hide my love for physics. I had one friend who was very keen on physics and in, I would get together with him and we would read books uh, written by Richard Feynman, a famous physicist, and uh, Isaac Newton. And my favorite was the story of Tycho Brahe. Actually, my son is named Tycho uh, after this amazing astronomer mm. who was sort of an obscure uh, figure in physics. And I was just very curious about their lives and you know they spent their entire lives observing an effect in nature and analyzing it, researching it, and trying to understand the world around them. And I knew my mind worked exactly like that, but I wasn't in an environment that encouraged the discovery of nature and that process because, as we know, careers in physics especially, tend to be undercompensated, jobs are not easy to find. And my folks were concerned that as a woman, my mother told me, don't tell boys, this is when I was about 16 years old, that you like math or physics because that'll make it harder uh, for you to <laughs> meet a boy and get married. And, uh, you know, I got to say, she was a little bit right. <laughs> uh, but... <laughs> 
But it, it, you know, it definitely uh, showed this cognitive dissonance between my critical thinking mind and what I wanted to do and the environment that I grew up in. So I had to hide my love for physics. And I started to buy books uh, that, you know, people did, told me about. Uh, and I just read the stories of these physicists trying to understand the math, but I lost confidence, Joe. I, I was told so many times that women could not do advanced math and physics that I started to believe those words. And when it came time to pick a career in college, I chose philosophy because my counselors in school said, you know, it's kind of like physics. You ask questions about the world and the universe, except it doesn't require math. It's more palatable and, you know, it's more feminine. So go for it. And I started to study philosophy in a system in Mexico, which is much like the European system, which means it's not a liberal arts education like in the US where you can take several subjects at the same time. Here you major in one and for four years, that's the only thing you study. And so for, I was set to study four years of philosophy, but two years in, I was so hungry for more physics knowledge. I was so thirsty to know about these equations and the universe that I decided to apply to colleges in the US because I wanted to learn more. And when I received the applications, I realized that US colleges cost about eight times what mm. we were paying in Mexico City for a private university. So I thought my dreams would never be possible because my parents couldn't afford that. And I was extremely lucky that a small school in Massachusetts, a very good university called Brandeis, wrote to me stating that they had a scholarship for foreign students called the Wien Scholarship that was given by an American person who wanted the American students to learn from uh, international students. And it was given... It, to only two international students per year. And they made me write some extra essays and pass some other uh, advanced tests. And they said that my passion for physics jumped out of the page, that uh, you know they wanted to give me a chance to go beyond what the constraints of my culture in Mexico was telling me to do. And so I was very lucky to have been awarded this full merit-based scholarship. And I flew to Boston in the middle of the winter as a transfer student, not having ever seen the snow coming from beautiful, sunny Mexico. <laughs> but I was lucky that I befriended the teaching assistant who was a graduate student from India by the name of Rupesh. And Rupesh was the first person to ever believe in me. And he believed in my passion to do physics. And we became very good friends, often talking about quantum mechanics and classical mechanics and well beyond the classroom. And he said that most students just wanted to get an A in the class and pass, but that my eyes would light up every time I talked physics. And so one day, I was almost crying. I had tears in my eyes, and I just told Rupesh, I don't want to die without trying. I don't want to die without trying to do physics. And he just got up and called his advisor, who was the head of the graduate student program at Brandeis, and he said, Dr. Wardle, I have a crazy student here. No, I'm kidding. He said, I have a student here. She only has two more years on her scholarship, and the physics major normally takes four years. What can we do with her? So Dr. Wardle called me into his office, and he said, we've done this before. We did it with Ed Witten, who, if your listeners don't know who he is, 
I encourage you to Google his name. Ed Witten is the father of string theory. And he actually mm -hmm. did what I did at Brandeis. He switched from history to physics, except he's actually a genius and I'm not. And so when they told me we've done it with him, I thought they're pulling my leg. There's no way I could ever accomplish anything like that. And they said, we're going to hand you this book called Div, Grad, and Curl, which is calculus in three dimensions. If in four weeks... I'm sorry, six weeks, you master this material, which was by the end of that summer, will let you skip through the first two years of the physics major so that you can enter in your junior year. And my first formal class in physics was circuits and uh, electronics. And I remember trying not to burn too many capacitors, uh, which also shows you how old I am because we're still working with resistors and capacitors <laughs> and, and all of that. And Rupesh devoted his entire summer, these six weeks, to teaching me and, and mentoring me everything from mathematics and calculus. You know, the weekend, the Saturday was derivatives, the Sunday was integrals, Monday was classical mechanics, the first three chapters, and so on. Until at the end of the summer, I was given this test and I passed and Rupesh said, there you go and disappear from the scene so that I wouldn't become dependent on him. And it was the hardest thing I had ever done in my life. And it's what determined my mission in life because I always wanted to pay Rupesh for teaching me all those weeks, every single day and devoting his summer to making my dream of becoming a physicist come true. And he said to me that there, that I shouldn't pay him because when he was growing up in Darjeeling, in a, a town in the mountains in India, like the tea, there was an old man who used to climb up to teach him and his sisters the tabla, the musical instrument, mathematics, and English. And they always wanted to pay this old man for all his teachings. But the old man said, no, the only way you could ever pay me back is if you do this with someone else in the world. And that pay it forward culture mm. is what Rupesh gave to me, that he passed the torch to me to become a, an inspiring person and, and a mentor for many others, especially women who, like myself, feel attracted to STEM, but who for some reason, whether it be financial or social, feel that they cannot achieve their dreams. Yeah, that's the notion of paying it forward is clearly very close to your heart. You've dedicated almost your entire life here to trying to promote STEM. And one of the themes that you always highlight or you often highlight is the idea of bravery. You mentioned the word bravery in different parts of your conversation. It takes a lot of courage to be able to turn a corner, to do something unorthodox, to do something that society says isn't exactly for you. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what your thinking is around how to get that courage into young girls, especially, and young women, and uh, what are some of the obstacles to helping them feel that courage? Thank you, Joe, for this very thoughtful question. Uh, the title of a book by a friend of mine, Reshma Sajani, comes to mind. It's Brave Not Perfect. I think as young women, we are encouraged to appear perfect. 
And there is a study uh, done uh, by Carol Dweck, uh, actually at Stanford, a psychologist at, at Stanford uh, that talks, discusses mindset. And she found that boys typically had a growth mindset growing up, meaning that their intelligence was not uh, capped, that they could become more intelligent, that they could grow in their skills, that they could achieve anything they wanted to, whereas girls were typically more conditioned to accept a, a specific amount of intelligence. You're, you know, you're a cat. You're not good for that. You cannot stretch yourself to do that, especially math and, and skills that are typically associated with uh, men. And so what happens is that we want to continue this uh, appearance of, of, of being perfect and being good at what we do. So we risk less. So the conclusion of the study is that women tend to, to take less risks. And what is science if not a risk? And, and so I think bravery is about teaching girls that they don't have to be good at what they do initially, that they can become good by practicing, by taking risks, that failure is actually something that should be encouraged. If you don't fail, you're never going to really succeed because you'll keep repeating what you're already good at. So from a very young age, and I do this with my five-and-a-half-year-old daughter, I encourage her to enjoy failing because what that means, and we actually talk about it every Friday night, I, I ask my kids two questions. What did they learn this week and what did they fail at? And I really love uh, encouraging her to fail during the week because that means that she's trying. And if she, you know, she'll still get scared about sharing that. But if she doesn't fail, she knows that maybe, you know, next week she'll try something new. And that's something that we laugh at, that we enjoy, that we celebrate at home. And I, I really think that increases the, the amount of bravery in girls. Yeah, you did a TED Talk, and one of your favorite, one of your quotes that was a, a favorite of mine, you said, success is not the absence of failure. It's the art of moving forward in spite of failure. And I think that there's something really important about all things scientific, including data science, which is if you knew the answer, what's the, what's the, What's the point of the journey? It's the idea of trying to experiment failure, and that's how learning and growth happens. And uh, I wonder about if you could expand upon that idea of how do you help someone to figure out how to move on from a failure, how to, how to feel that that's a good thing? Sure. I think, first of all, a dangerous thing in data science is bias, as we know it. If we already think we're too smart and we know the answer before even looking or analyzing a data set, then we are really not doing data science. All we're doing mm. is trying to prove, you know, with what, whatever mathematical manipulation we can do, we're trying to prove our point or a hypothesis. And that mm -hmm. can become extremely dangerous as we, you know, we can see tons of examples out there, but without getting too much into it, you know, what we should train people to do in data science is to let data speak for itself. So that's what we call the, the massaging the data in the beginning, the exploratory analysis. What? Let's just take basic statistics. What's the mean? What's the average? You know, what is, you know, what, what are the correlations that I can find here? What factors are coming out? All of those questions, as basic as they, they are, uh, you know, they are the ones that are going to paint the path moving forward. As I have shared in the past, the most important skill for uh, data scientists, in my opinion, where they're 
well, it's not one, there are several, but, uh, you know, besides curiosity and intuition, is critical thinking. It's learning to ask the question, who owns the data? What is this data for? What are the limits of uh, the, the answers that I can come up with? Are they going to have an effect on, uh, you know, the insights that uh, people are going to take away from these exercises and so on? And in terms of encouraging people to survive failure or to get up after failure, I, you know, I say nothing more than to look at my story. I mean, the, the real part of my story is that it sounds really beautiful and perfect and everybody's like giving me accolades like, oh, you were the first Mexican to uh, woman to earn a PhD in physics at Stanford. Well, what you don't often hear, and I do talk about it, is that I failed the qualifying exam, which is that exam that allows people to continue on uh, to do their PhDs after their masters, and the reason why I failed is, uh, you know, very simple. I didn't have the background that most of the other students who came to Stanford, one of the top universities in the world, with having won math olympiads and with a lot more background than I had, having only done two years. Well, my expectations were, you know, very very high, and I failed. And uh, Interestingly, the only two women in a class of 34 uh, men uh, that uh, tried to do this qualifying exam failed. And this woman and I were told by the head of the graduate student committee at Stanford that most physics departments in the U.S. were male-dominated and that, you know, why try again? Even though it was the chance was uh, legally given by the department, we absolutely had, uh, you know, another chance next year. Why try again if most of them failed in the past years? And we were given, given several examples. We fought, and my advisor... Uh, Nobel Prize winner Bob Laughlin always told me that he saw in me not only the skills and the passion to do physics, but he called me a warrior because I had the skills in me to fight for what I wanted despite the failures. I had the power in me to get up and to be resilient in the face of uh, disadvantages. And so what happened is we studied like crazy for one year. I didn't travel. I didn't move from my dorm at Stanford. And I recreated every single step in, from calculus to classical mechanics, thermodynamics, every single subject in all of physics until a year later, both Lydia and I were given the chance again, and we both passed. So there is nothing like persevering and you will guaranteed you will not uh, get your dreams uh, come true if you don't persevere and if you don't try and things that are actually worth it in life you have to work really hard to get them you know what's really interesting about what you just described is that increasingly what we're seeing in the data space is that we graduate people that have these incredible math skills and what they don't necessarily have is social context. They don't have an understanding to interact with people, to ask curiously about what the actual problem is. And there's a certain kind of humility and humanity to that side of the equation. And it seems like we're, we're, we're emphasizing one part of that in the STEM and actually de-emphasizing some of the context-rich part and, um, and business engagement in part of our curricula. I wonder if you can comment on that. And in particular, I think you have a great story around turtles. 
Oh my goodness, Joe, this is such a great question and you're very eloquent. The way you described it is, is, is so good. So yes, I think my criticism is that in our race to teach everyone the tools, we have forgotten what data science and what coding is for. It's not an end in itself. We don't just teach code to everyone just so that they can code. We teach them to code and to do data science so that they can solve problems, so that they can solve companies' problems. They can solve you know, hunger and medical problems in the world, and they can solve product problems, and they can create incredible new applications that are solutions to humanity's problems. And what happens is that we want we wanted so fast, 10 years ago, to get everyone to know these sk basic skills. You know, just like a language, we were teaching people to Uh, code and learn Python and, and this just like a language. And what happened to me, and I think this is a very good example, I often volunteer in museums or workshops or I have created initiatives myself to encourage and inspire minorities uh, such as Latin American women to uh, uh, succeed in STEM. And one of these initiatives was in New York. And uh, one of these associations uh, had brought their uh, secondary school girls, I think they were uh, 14 or 15 years old uh, girls, and they were spending eight weeks researching a problem and trying to apply basic data science to solve a problem that the museum had. You know, some of them were working with the birds, others were uh, working with turtles, and another one, uh, another team was working with the astronomy team at the museum. And so I, I started to walk table by table and talk to these girls and they were just amazing girls. I mean, I wish that I had been given opportunities like that at their age. They were so proficient in SQL, you know, man manipulating databases and they had all kinds of factors about these turtles. And I just approached one of them and I saw, I looked at the, the, the um, Excel spreadsheet that she had on her screen and I looked at, at you know, every uh, column and one of them was weight. And it didn't have any units. I noticed that it just had numbers like 200, 134, and 150. And so I just decided to, I was a curious person. I'm a curious person. And I asked the girls on the team, hey, so what is this weight in? Is it in pounds? I mean, I don't know how big the turtles are. I've never seen them. You know, and, and, and all the girls were all of a sudden you know, after answering every single question about SQL and data science and, you know, statistics, like, so well and so perfectly, you know, accurate, now their stares turned white, and they didn't know what the weight was in. They had seen the turtles, of course, but they didn't really know. And so they were like, uh, uh, I bet that's in kilos. And I said, Uh, really? Wow, that's so interesting. They must be huge turtles because I myself, I'm like, you know, I'm about 55 kilos. You know, the average woman, were, you know, we're like 60 kilos, something like that. Those must be, you know, they're double my size. Oh, my goodness. Like, that's fascinating. Like, where can I go see them? And then another girl said, oh, no, 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 no. That, uh, that must be in pounds. It has to be pounds because they, they immediately realized that what I was saying didn't fit the description of the turtles they had actually seen themselves and she's like it has to be in pounds and I was like oh wow so they're probably around my size because I am about 130 pounds so you're saying they're you know they weigh as much as I do and all of a sudden they started laughing and they got all confused and you know it took them quite a long time and conversation wise like to 
come up with the fact that, you know, they actually had to ask one of the teachers uh, to come over to the table. And finally, the teacher said, actually, the units are grams. They were actually tiny turtles that you could put in the palm of your hand. And that moment for me was just a light bulb went on in my head. And I said, this is what's happening in America and in the rest of the world because we are so quickly trying to educate people by giving them the tools that we have forgotten what the tools are for. They are just manipulating data in and out for two months without knowing what the problem is really about. What, you know, how am I going to solve the issues for the museum? How am I going to give them insights if I, I'm not even imagining what this turtles, what the physics of being a little turtle is? You know, the distances of their pond, you know, if they were huge as, you know, they, made them out to be with those weights in pounds or kilograms, they wouldn't be able to move. And so every other factor they had there about the distance they traveled during the day and whatnot would have been wrong. But they weren't even thinking about the problem. And this is what in mature data science we call uh, domain expertise. Mm -hmm. And you have to think about the problem and come up with quantitative and qualitative uh, observations to figure out the solution. I think this is such an important topic in the data community these days. We talk a lot about data literacy. And when you talk about data literacy, it makes it sound as if the onus of understanding what's going on is that of the business. How come these guys don't understand enough about my 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 algorithm? How come yes. they don't understand enough about regression analysis? And you're putting more of an emphasis as you describe this on the data storytelling, which is the onus of the person doing the analytics to really convey something meaningful to abstract that math away for something that's that can drive an impact. At, at Click, we call that an active intelligence loop where someone's using the analytics to compel an action. Absolutely, Joe. I think it is the responsibility of each data scientist, not only to bring this critical thinking and this intelligence to their insights and their problem solving, but also their ethics. Good ethics should not be policed by the company itself. Every single data scientist should be asking themselves, hey, if I'm working at a financial institution that's giving out loans and they send me out to you know, get census data and see who do, are we likely going to give out loans for, and I realize that one of the variables is race, for example, or religion, and I know that ethically I should not discriminate against people because of their race or religion or gender or you know, any other thing that my values guide me to, I shouldn't expect the company to come in and check and police my model to see if that factor is there. The right thing to do is for each data scientist to remove that factor, knowing that it's going to bias the model against a certain specific population. You bring up an interesting point with respect to biases that are created as part of that analytical outcome. Uh, last month, we had a conversation with Kevin Hannigan, who was talking about how important it was to have a diverse set of people participating in the analysis to make sure that they had diversity in thought to be able to figure out where some of these implicit biases were, whether they were confirmation bias or gender biases. And I wonder what you've seen that has helped to – a lot of your work is is trying to encourage a diverse mindset in the, in the field – are you seeing that people are starting to employ more diversity with respect to the analytics? Are you seeing that in, in where, where you work? Um, and what, what impact does that have in terms of the overall effectiveness of that, of that analytic? Yeah. 
I mean, thankfully, we had economic pressures to push on the advancement of uh, more inclusion and diversity. The reason is that uh, the market became much more global in the last 10 years. I mean, just with COVID, the acceleration of the adoption of certain technologies like, I don't know, uh, grocery ordering online, I think it increased uh, from 15% to 30%. It doubled in only six months. Uh, you know, electric cars, uh, so all kinds of things, uh, you know, were adopted in the last 10 years so quickly that the companies themselves had to build teams that understood the client base. And if that client base already was diverse, it required the company to have different modes of thinking because how could it be, you know, in the past, we, we know uh, the stories of uh, the first uh, safety uh, airbags in cars were designed by a purely male team. And it is well known that the dummies used in their test, uh, you know, crash test uh, experiments were always... Uh, uh, mimicking male proportions. And so that's why in the beginning, these uh, so-called safety airbags were actually suffocating uh, women and, and younger, uh, especially, uh, you know, teenagers. And, and something had to be changed. The team had to, you know, bring in diversity. But if you keep only hiring, you know, uh, male people to guide these testing and these labs, then that's what's going to happen. So I, you know, I, my, my work is cut out, so to speak, mm. mine and, and everybody else's, you know, we have to do a much better job at this. Yeah, that is a shame. You were telling me that you were recently at a conference where almost everybody was a white male and the conference advisor said, I'm not sure I understand why that's a problem. Absolutely. This was told to me in Europe. And I was extremely shocked because in the US, at least we, you know, pretty much everyone and their mother knows that uh, you strive for uh, diversity and inclusion at conference panels. You want different opinions. And this person said, hey, we already have diversity in topic. Like, why would this matter? And, and you know, I, I, it was, I was just beyond shocked. I didn't even know how to react. Yeah. So Deborah, as we wrap up this conversation... You are subject to a lot of really cool technology, a lot of cool big thinking. What are you most excited about in terms of the world of data and what's changing in the world around us? I gotta say, I'm super excited about quantum computing because it's such a novel way of harnessing nature to do computations. It's so different than classical computers that used, uh, you know, electricity and, you know, ones and zeros. And we're kind of coming to a limit of how small we can build the microprocessors and the chips in a computer uh, to be. I mean, we've, you know, they're so tiny already. And, and they're, you know, like at the uh, nano electronics and microelectronics. And we're, you know, getting to a point where we need something radically different. And there are many problems such as, you know, I'm just going to state three of them, but one of them is optimization, where classical computers in big, large optimization settings give us a good solution, but probably not the actual, you know, global minima or the global solution to certain problems like routing, like shipping packages and coming up with the best optimal route to, to do so. Uh, you know, other problems such as uh, modeling molecules, atom by like a full atom uh, modeling and simulation to come up with new drugs. The truth is we use a lot of classical uh, ways and Newton's laws to model atomic interactions, which are couldn't be further from Newtonian 
Newtonian mechanics. You know, they operate under quantum mechanic laws. And so now that the basis and the actual quantum computer will be made up of those exact same processes, uh, you know, will just open the doors for a bunch of incredible solutions to coming up with new materials and new drugs that cure specific diseases that we haven't been able to find. And the third uh, thing uh, I'll mention is problems of very, very large scale, such as predicting earthquakes and hurricanes and, and all kinds of things that have been, you know, so computationally expensive that or the solutions in time are, you know, exponential in time. Well, now we're going to make them polynomial in time, which, uh, you know, for... Uh, you know, that in ground level, that what that means is simply, you know, you can wait a few hours or minutes and you can get a solution that otherwise would take the age of the universe to come up with. And so I'm super excited about quantum computing for what it can do to climate change by finding new materials, better electrical batteries, for what it can do to medicine and uh, for the world and the economy at large. I think it's a super exciting area. It's super exciting. It is. Um, so, Deborah, how can our listeners find out more about you and your work? Great. Uh, so, I have my own website, uh, which is uh, science with Debbie d e b b i e dot com. But I'm actually more. Uh, I post more often on Twitter at Debbie Bere. That's d e b b i e b s and boy e r e. And uh, Instagram, the same name, and Facebook. Uh, so you can just uh, pretty much Google my name and you'll find out where I am. I, I overshare a lot. So <laughs> I think people <laughs> will find interesting stuff about kids, travels, uh, quantum mechanics, uh, data science, etc. Kids, travel, and quantum mechanics. Uh, it's an interesting <laughs> and, and amazing combination. Deborah, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you so much, Joe. This has been amazing. Deborah Barabashez is a physicist, data scientist, television host, and campaigner for STEM education. As the first Mexican woman to graduate from Stanford University with a PhD in physics, she went on to become the lead scientist at one of Europe's leading research institutions, VTT, and co-host of Discovery Channel's Outrageous Acts of Science. Thank you for listening to this episode of Data Brilliant, brought to you by Click and hosted by me, Joe Dos Santos. Courage. Courage to explore in a growth mindset. Courage to fail and move beyond that failure. Courage to ask questions instead of stating opinion. Thank you, Deborah, for reminding us to encourage young people, especially young women, to stay curious, stay confident, and remember that all successes are forged by failure. Let's all start thinking about how we talk honestly about these failures and the importance of failure to our success. Think about the importance of having and acting on good data in your life and in your organization to discover how you can solve your most complex data challenges with a real-time active intelligence analytics data pipeline that generates better insights and more value from your data. Visit click.com. That's Q-L-I-K dot com.